0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with Christopher Paul Harris, author of the book To Build a Black Future, The Radical Politics of Joy, Pain, and Care. Chris, welcome to the New Books Network. Pleasure to be here with you, Mark. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Something about
1: myself. Well, presently, I am an assistant professor in the Department of Global and International Studies at the University of California, Irvine. Uh, Prior to that, I was a postdoc in the African-American Studies Department at Northwestern University. Uh, and I got my Ph.D. in politics and historical studies uh, from the New School for Social Research uh, in New
0: York. So what led you to undertake a book about uh, the, shall we say, the the future, which is, is, <laughs> is, is, is such an a interesting subject to, to address, especially when, it, uh, you know, given the approach that you undertake within it?
1: Yeah, that's a good question, uh, always a complicated one, particularly when an academic or a scholar such as I am is endeavoring on their first book and that first book is drawn from a dissertation. So the first part of the question is, you know, why did I write this book or how how did I come to write this is kind of structured within the context <laughs> of the requirements one has to uh, pursue or undergo when um trying to get a PhD, but I mean, you know, that's kind of a, a flipped way to, to say it. The dissertation itself in there for the book didn't really begin where it ended up, right? As you say, something, you know, gesturing towards the future. I originally intended to do a completely different project than the one that I ended up doing. Uh, and I kind of stumbled upon um, writing about the movement for black lives. Now, when I say stumbled upon, that doesn't mean that it was haphazard Uh, The Black Lives Matter movement was one segment of what I imagined to be a multi-sided ethnographic project um, that was interested in generational politics, which is to say interested in how um, millennials, which is my generation, were uh, interpreting and pursuing the political. And I imagined I would do this across several different sites. And again, the the movement was just one. Uh, But when I actually... You know, went through the process of joining a movement organization. uh, In this case, the Black Youth Project One Hundred, the New York City chapter, now defunct New York City chapter of that otherwise national organization. Uh, The things that I started to see and observe in that space and during that process not only resonated with me from that you know kind of initial generational politics angle, uh, but more poignantly and personally, uh, it, you know, it really brought me to a different kind of relationship with my own blackness. And to be quite honest, just the space was dynamic and was was generative. So I came to write about movement that way. Uh, but I think it's important to note, and you know, anyone who's ever written a dissertation and then translated that dissertation into a book, there's something that happens in between those two points and so finishing the kind of dissertation part of it and then you know moving it to a book was was produced a kind of different life for the text and I I think I actually struggled in, in a lot of ways to to kind of understand what it was I had written what it was that I had experienced and perhaps more importantly what is the story or what was the story that I wanted to tell uh, about it. And it was the process of coming to understand those three things. What did I experience? What did I witness? And what did I want what, to, what did I want to say about it that uh, really brought me to this idea of thinking about the future. And, you know, that's not my own phrase uh, to build a black future or black futures is not unique to me. It's actually pretty prevalent and suggestive of, the moment itself, and in, in fact, the the idea of "Build Black Futures" comes directly from movement. It was a uh, when I first joined, there was a a, a policy um, a proposal or or policy booklet that the Black Youth Project One Hundred on a national level had released, um, and it was called the, the agenda to build Black Futures. and And we had swag, uh, with swag t shirts, stickers, you know, things like that. That. Said, build black futures, and so the concept of that really stuck with me throughout, and it wound up being the grounding, uh, the grounding feature of uh, of the text, and what really kind of solidified the direction that I wanted to take with it, and how I began to think about it.
0: It for me, it was such a fascinating read, and, and I have to say, I, I've you know, I, I've written my own dissertation, I've uh, read other first books that were products of dissertations. And yet, I find I've never encountered one that w- in which it was quite so personal, and in which its origins as a predominantly or strictly academic project seemed so uh, distant. And I, I mean that in a good way. I mean, I I would not have read this and said, "Oh, this is definitely the first book by an academic." <laughs> it, it was it, the, the personal journey was very much there, and I thought it helped to really provide a, a, a degree of of insight that. Uh, you know, and, and for me, approaching it with the understanding of that insight in a way that I, I don't often do when I'm reading, uh, you know, books by by academics. Well,
1: I definitely I appreciate you saying that, and you know, I hoped that some element of the personal was was vivid, but yet not overwhelming. And I think when you're dealing with, I, I mean, I I feel like sensitive is is such an inadequate word, but it's the word that's coming to mind now. Um, such a, a delicate subject that Im- did have a, like a very impactful uh, or it impacted me in a very personal way in terms of being in movement space and and you know the things that movement was or black liberation struggle in general tried to achieve you know kind of being confronted with that uh, you know head on in a very vivid way led to a desire to Produce a text that could hold all of that, right? To hold the experience of being in that space on a personal level, uh, to hold the experience of being in that space on a collective level, to, in a more, to, to more broadly, I suppose, like say something about now that might open up pathways that could lead us elsewhere. Uh, and the only way, really, to do that, I think, is to attend uh to produce a text that reads in a way that's not strictly uh academic that really can capture the spirit of the of the time and the experience.
0: I was wondering if you could perhaps uh start off the the examination of of of, of your text uh by by talking a bit about the movement for black lives and, and, and how you situated within the Black radical tradition that you describe uh, in the first part of your book.
1: Yes, uh, great. So one of the things that I tried to make clear from my estimation um, is what exactly the movement for Black Lives is. And so on, on one level, there is the organizational side of it, right, like the things that most people probably associate with the movement, the Black Lives Matter, a global network, that organization, or BYP 100, or or even the kind of umbrella organization that calls itself the Movement for Black Lives. So when when we think about Black Lives Matter and the movement, we're thinking about an organizational uh, infrastructure and network that emerged um, at a particular time. And I'll, I'll come back to the emerging at a particular time point in a in a moment. But the other side of it, and I think the the most important side of it, or, or not the most, but uh, Perhaps an overlooked side of it, I'd say, is the political culture that then spreads beyond what we might imagine to be uh, traditional movement spaces. And so in that way, the movement is both this network of organizations, activists and cultural workers, as well as a political cultural zeitgeist that spreads um, largely online and through social media. So that's a, the first bit of point about it is to kind of define the movement as not simply being organizational, uh, but being cultural. Uh, and if we look at it that way, then the thing that, that might ultimately survive from this particular conjuncture, this particular period when organizations fade or activists or cultural workers move on is, is that culture. And so the second part of the question is, so how does then that culture and the kind of organizations that, that can bind with it fit into a larger, trajectory of the Black radical tradition. And one of the things that I was intent on doing was grounding the movement uh, in this present moment, in this conjuncture, uh, as a response to, on the one hand, the Black politics of the recent past, uh, and on the other, as a response to uh, larger political and social phenomena. Um the crisis in world capitalism, the hypervisibility of black death, uh, et etc, and then to think about that response, which one could argue has been the response that black uh political and cultural formations have been responding to or have been attempting to respond to over time, how this particular iteration of that struggle compared to compared with or diverged from those Past struggles and, and what I want to highlight, or one of the arguments that I make with that regard is, or within that space, is that the rejuvenation of Black radicalism that the movement pursues is not simply one that picks up, say, the Black Power era or where the Black Power era left off, but rather extends it in circular fashion. And I think that the, the you know the main axis of this extension is of a return to the Black radicalism, uh, or at least I argue is a return to the Black radicalism of the enslaved insofar as abolition, a key political demand uh, of the movement, is not simply about eradicating a single institution or, say, the uh, police and prisons, uh, nor is it a desire for inclusion into uh, the liberal status quo as such. Instead, it is the pursuit of and a vision for, you know, something else altogether. And, you know, when was the last time that kind of radicalism, that kind of vision was central to Black politics? You know, I argue that that was with the uh, plantation politics and folk culture of the slave. So uh, just to wrap up this question, I see the movement fitting into the movement as it is now, organizationally political, and culturally, as being a part of a longer conversation within the Black radical tradition that picks up certain things, diverges from others, but ultimately returns to the source, which is the radicalism of Black slave culture.
0: I, I was wondering if you could elaborate just a bit upon that concept of cycles, because uh, for, from a historical perspective, cycles can, can can be very controversial, but you outlay uh, in your book, the the, the pattern that existed uh, as part of fitting it within that tradition, you've already elaborated upon that somewhat. But I was wondering if you could go a bit further and and talk about how that trajectory that you describe informs our understanding of the present movement. Yes, yeah,
1: great great question. Uh, I think the best way to 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 tackle that is to briefly zoom out to zoom back in. And to zoom out, what I would say is I think it's important that when we think about, say, a movement like the Movement for Black Lives or, or any movement um, across historical time, is to ask ourselves how and why that movement came to have its shape, its, its articulation. And so it was in asking that question. Uh, one of the one of the central questions within that frame, when it comes to say the movement for Black Lives, that I kind of take up in the text, but that could ground just an understanding of the process of the method. So, is it, so how are we to understand Black joy, which is a you know a thing that's prominent in in the political culture of the movement? How are we to understand the phrase unapologetically Black? What does that tell us about now? And how can thinking about that phrase or that uh, posture within a historical context tell us about the convergences convergences and divergences of the past what are the kind of concrete objective material conditions that make possible an articulation like unapologetically black or black joy what were those similar articulations in the past and it was through that kind of prism along with what I mentioned before the kind of generational lens that I began began to think through and try to articulate this kind of trajectory, not as a teleological trajectory, but one that was concretely, or that concretely emerged from, from material conditions. And so from making the argument that the movement is a return to the source, is a return to the slave, then the question is so so what were the politics of of what and why, what were the politics of you know black radicalism? during the period of slavery, why was that politics articulated in that manner? And when you do that from a historical perspective, you you see this kind of originating cleave, as I call it in the book, that really defines or has defined in different ways over time Black politics. And that cleave was between the enslaved and those who were free, right? And so from that Base, you really get, and, and uh, Cedric Robinson talks about this um, in his book, Black Movements in America, like these two impeding cultures. One that was more accommodating to uh, capitalism and the, 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 as capitalism developed and, and liberal status quo and sought kind of admission into that world primarily. You know, not exclusively, these, these are kind of like reductive ways to put it, but it's helpful for us to think about. And then you had the more radical side of that that thought that that sort of thing was impossible uh, and so thinking back to to where i began this idea of like oh what does unapologetically black mean what is black joy how does that compare to the past you notice how within this kind of divergent space between the radicalism of uh, black slave culture and the and the noun number free, those who pursued citizenship within America's tapestry, uh, what you then get is a way of trying to fashion a collective self, right? And so unapologetically Black is a way of doing that in the contemporary moment. And so how do we do that in the past? I argue or suggest that we can think about that in these, you know, kind of period, period pieces that are rough sketches that allow us to think about not just how people pursued black politics in those moments, but the conditions under which they did so and why it emerged in that way. And so if we say that the kind of radicalism of the black slave was one way and the citizen was another way of trying to articulate what black politics should be, when you move forward in time, the next moment where you see a really assertive articulation of that and the evolution of those to divergent cultures, one emerging from the slave, one emerging from the uh, you know burgeoning black bourgeoisie. You you see them come together again uh, in the period of the new Negro and the, the Harlem Renaissance. A couple decades at that. You can think about that also generationally and the kind of material conditions that produced the types of ideological conflicts, divisions, and debates that happened at that time and then the next time that was clear to me where you get, you know, kind of a broad-based articulation of fashioning a Black collective self is during the Black Power era with the idea of of Black being beautiful uh, and the kind of militancy there. I mean, there's a lot more to this story, but the point here is that if we take care to attend to the material conditions through which certain political ideas emerge, get taken up, and others fall to the wayside, we can then make sense of how and why this particular iteration of the Black freedom struggle emerged in the manner that it did as part of a longer conversation that's been going on within the Black intramural since the days of slavery. I I hope that addresses the question in somewhat of a coherent way.
0: Oh, it, it does, thank you. Uh, but and, and but I I I want to make it clear though that that what you're doing in the book you're not just talking about the history of it you're you're talking about how the history informs the present because the core of your book is built around an examination of these three constituent elements of the culture of the movement for Black Lives. And the, and you you've already uh, referenced uh, one of those elements, which was joy. And 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 to to me, uh, you know, it, it, it was an interesting way of examining it because it, there's there's so much about the movement for Black Lives on the surface that that doesn't seem to be as much about joy as it is about the other two elements you described, which are pain and care and yet what i found fascinating is when you take those talking about that, that just how how uh, prevalent and how important all three of those elements are towards understanding uh, a lot of what is happening the motivations and the, and the focus of the movement for black lives
1: yeah absolutely i mean so th- those three elements pain joy and care were you know pathways to understanding the movement as a whole both in its present tense uh, existence and and evolution, but also you know within this historical trajectory that we're talking about, one of the ways that the movement is different, uh, and this came directly from being in movement space. It's not something that you know I invented. Uh, and I, I start with pain to to and, you know coming back to joy in a second. I start with pain. Um, within the context of the book, precisely because pain has been at the center of Black struggle the whole time. So what makes it different now? It was a way to think about the way pain is experienced, and pain is experienced differently because of the you know material conditions under which we live, one of which is the existence of communicative technologies like social media. So now we can see Black premature death over and over and over and over again. And so that repetition produced a particular kind of response to pain. So again, it's not that pain in and itself is unique or that joy or care is unique. But if we think again about the historical specificity about how these things come together, then it gives us some purchase to understand why they make up pillars of the movement's political culture. And so how do you respond to pain? So there's a political response to pain, and that's abolition is the recognition that, well, obviously, the law is a historical accomplice in the production of Black pain. And if that is so, if our institutions are participants in the creation of that pain, then we cannot rely on those institutions for our liberation. Not only can we not rely on those institutions, but we can't rely on trying to recreate those types of institutions. So here would be a critique of the idea that there's any kind of nationalism that that uh, whether it be cultural or, or or otherwise that that could you know adequately address where we need to go um, in terms of exacting black liberation, which would be a liberation for for all people, and so pain generates that political part, but the other part has been that you know the kind of the emergence of joy, a, a concrete articulation of joy as political. Uh, now, some people are critical of Black joy or other ways of thinking about, you know, the affective register that, to the critic's mind, kind of sidesteps anti-Black terror. But I mean, to me, it's the exact opposite, is that we can only concretely think about joy precisely because of a recognition of anti-Black terror and violence because of Black pain. So joy becomes a way to regard pain. So there's that political point of regarding Black pain, which is an abolitionist ethic or position that we need to undo and recreate the world, joy is a way to get us there. It's a way to prefigure what that world might look like. It's a way of saying that it is possible in the here and now to be joyful, and that joyfulness allows us to see the world to come. It helps us motivate us towards that world. And so that's why in the uh, uprisings of 2020, when you see you know, all the singing and the dancing, right? When when you see that kind of cultural element, that spirited celebratory element, the unap- unapologetically Blackness, right? The joy that that brings, that is not just a response to pain, but it's, it's a, it's a, it is a, a, a way of seeing the world otherwise, how the world can be. And the only way you can recognize joy to be that the only way you can regard Black pain is having this ethics of care. And that ethics of care, of course, feeds and sits in both places, but also has its own dimension, one of which is to say, well, we need to recreate our practices. We need different practices. We need different institutions. We need to be radically inclusive. Uh, we need to uh, you know, find new ways or look elsewhere outside of uh, Western epistemologies, outside of the same practices that kind of brought us to this position in the first place that has produced black pain in order to, you know, deliver us someplace else. And so an ethics of care is about that as much as it's about just recognizing all of the ways that we within ourselves reproduce those same kind of hierarchies, the same kinds of, you know, punitive positions uh, uh, that we've inherited, right? And the only way, again, that you can kind of, begin to attempt to disentangle yourself from that the only way that you can proceed with a kind of abolitionist ethic is by having that you know underlying position of care so I put those three things together from the observations of being in movement and and also you know observing them elsewhere that this movement's political culture that exists online and called that constellation movements, political culture, pain, joy, and care, the politics of the wake, building off of Christina Sharp, I won't get too deep into that, but the reason why I cite it here is because one of the definitions of the wake, uh, or let's say two of the definitions of the wake that <laughs> she, she talks about in that book is one of consciousness, right? A consciousness of what? A consciousness of living in the wake of slavery. And if you recognize that, then that invites that consciousness invites it she writes it herself in the book an ethics of care that consciousness produces one one in which you would then regard black pain which necess- necessitates abolition and then you would understand through that ethics of care through an understanding of being in the wake that you're actually not going to get to that end goal that striving towards abolition without providing people with a vision of what the world might look like without it. And that's the work of black joy, as much as it's the work of creating institutional formations and practices that don't simply reproduce the harms that are created in the context of the capitalist world system that we live under today.
0: So you've had this book, which uh, offers us this great insight into the movement for black lives and the you know the the, the politics of you know it, this element but you this is ultimately about working towards a, a, a better future or more promising future Wh- where do you see the the movement is going from here how, how how do you see it building upon where it is now to uh reach or at least get closer to that uh I, that that promised future or that that hopeful future yeah, <laughs> the honest
1: answer is I don't know. <laughs> um, but what, what I can say is, I mean, we can't know, right? There there, there are so many things that we can't know. Um, we we can't know how the, say, different technologies of state uh, repression will evolve, right? Um, we We can't know the precise ways that the kinds of institutions and organizational formations that have emerged in what I call in the book the time of Black Lives Matter, you know, the ways those institutions will be captured. I mean, we've seen in different ways how being submerged in the nonprofit industrial complex can compromise our organizations and the radicalism of our movements in various ways. And that's not to blame any one person um, uh, or, or organization as much as to say that, you know, perhaps some of that is expected. So to me, when I think about the future of the movement, I think less about the movement as it exists right now, at least organizationally, not that those organizations won't continue to do good work, and you know, kind of bringing back to one of my earlier points, is really about what remains from the culture, right? This The, the regard for Black pain, the celebration of Black joy, and, and, you know, insisting on practicing a radically inclusive ethic of care. If we can hold on to the political culture that the movement has produced, and I believe that we can and will, I be, you know, it's kind of hard to go back once these things have been introduced, um, then we'll be in a good position, and I'll be eager to see and, and eager to see in you know, a post-Black Lives Matter world, if that's where we're going, kind of organizationally and institutionally, how the political culture survives and gets taken up in new struggles uh, or, or, or you know, current struggles, say like Stop Cop City in, in Atlanta, or you know, the, the different ways that we will be confronted with uh, state and capitalist imperatives um that seek to undermine the I don't want to say progression, but you know, the evolution of our politics. And you know, so again, the short answer is who knows, I don't know. But the more elaborate answer is to say that what I try to point to in this book is a is a is a politics that emerges from and for our present. Um, and the movement both as an organizational structure, you know, with a network of organizations and activists, and most importantly, again, as a political culture, gives us a blueprint towards moving someplace else, and it's going to be up to us um, and, you know, future generations to take up this culture uh, and to advance it in whatever way uh, we see fit and then the next generation see fits to, to pick up on and correct our failures, our blind spots, uh, uh, you know, generated from the conditions under which they come of age, um, that brings us closer to abolition while we, in the present day, continue to attempt to see abolition, the politics of wake, pain, joy, and care as a practice to be honed and pursued in our everyday life as we move towards that unknown elsewhere.
0: We appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us. But before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Uh, Yeah, well,
1: first of all, it's been a pleasure uh, to speak with you, with you, Mark. Uh, This has been great. Uh, I am actually about to embark on a book tour for the book, which comes out. I don't know when this actual episode will be released, but the book is out September 12th and I'll be on the road for that, so I've been a bit distracted as of late um, with preparing for all of that, but I can say that I am in the process of working on, or have been in the process of working on a couple of different things. The, the biggest project is called uh, The Last President. I'll just leave it as at that, uh, but, and, and say that it's kind of an extension and attempt to pull together different strands of abolition, abolitionist theorizing, in, in a way that might bring us toward a, maybe a unified theory of abolition, but you know, we'll we'll see uh, what comes of that. And then the other thing is just a shorter piece that tries to bring together uh, in more concrete fashion um, abolition within the context of or in conversation with uh, the Marxist revolutionary tradition. Uh, too often, you know, these two things, abolition, Marxism, are kind of understood to be or pursued as different lenses through revolutionary politics uh, and theory. And that makes sense to a certain extent because they are not synonymous, but there's a way that they speak together. And and I'm working on, on you know, demonstrating that along with other scholars who are trying to push towards
0: that. Well, those sound like fascinating projects. I wish you the best of luck with them and with your forthcoming tour. Many thanks, Mark. Thank you. You're very welcome. Have a good day.
1: You too.